Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. I have a confession to make. Our producer, Atara Lakritz, and I have been moonlighting for another podcast, AJC's newest podcast, and it launches next week. Here's a preview. The world has overlooked an important episode in modern history, the 800,000 Jews who left their homes in Arab nations and Iran in the mid-20th century. Some fled anti-Semitism, mistreatment, and pogroms that sparked a refugee crisis like no other. Certainly a lot of businesses were trashed, the houses were burnt, Women raped, mutilated, babies killed. And that was a kind of time when the Jews of Iraq started to think, well, maybe this isn't our homeland after all. Others sought opportunities for their families or followed the calling to help create a Jewish state. So during thousands of years, the Jewish dream to go to the Holy Land, to see the city of Jerusalem. It was a dream during thousands of years. In Israel, America, Italy, wherever they landed, these Jews forged new lives for themselves and future generations. American Jewish Committee will explore the lessons we can learn from this pivotal moment of Jewish history in a new limited series called The Forgotten Exodus. Premiering August 1st, we delve into the rich Jewish heritage of Iran and Arab nations as some begin to normalize relations with Israel and traverse family histories and moving stories of courage, perseverance, and resilience. Join us as we remember the forgotten exodus. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Every Monday, you'll hear the story of one Jewish family with roots in the Arab world. Each story is personal and different. Some include painful memories. Others honor the pioneering courage of their ancestors. For those of you, like me, who never knew this chapter in Jewish history, we hope you find this series enlightening. Now for this week's episode. In today's political climate, it's hard to imagine a time when a sharp-tongued Democratic strategist and an equally sharp Republican strategist could be happily married. But yes, James Carville and Mary Madeline showed us it could be done. Half of that political power couple, Democratic icon James Carville, joined us at AJC Global Forum 2022 alongside Republican strategist and award-winning political commentator Leslie Sanchez. They both shared some razor-sharp wit and wisdom with my colleague Julie Fishman-Raymond about today's political polarization and whether zero-sum politics is now the rule of the day. Here's a portion of that conversation. Thank you all for being here today, and thank you, of course, to Leslie and James. We're here today to talk about what is driving American politics today, the extremists or the moderates. And before we get to this big question... There are a lot of little questions that we're going to be answering, right? Who's making the biggest media splashes? Who's running each party? Who's actually influencing policy? And in some ways, these these questions may have very different answers. Before we go there, you both know that AJC is fiercely bipartisan. And it's not a legal footnote for us. It's a fundamental tenet of how we do our advocacy. We are driving towards the center because that's where we know change happens. 
that without compromise consensus, you can't move forward. And we believe that bipartisanship, nonpartisanship, is how we maintain our democracy. So it's with sort of an enthusiastic voyeurism that I now ask you to name some names. Because politics is dynamic and definitions are fluid. So I think we need to know who do we mean when we say the extremists? And who do we mean when we say moderates? So, Leslie, I'd like to start with you. And if you could maybe... This talk about the Democrats. Talk about the... Yeah, talk about the Democrats. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Tell us, okay, in the Democratic Party, who are the extremists and who are the moderates? We talk about the squad, the AOC we've yep. talked about, which is very familiar with this group. And I lead with AOC because you had a group of young progressive women who came into Congress, elected, uh, you know, and on the winds of that, really came in not looking for compromise, but looking for ways to change a system they feel is fundamentally broken. And I was facetiously saying, let me lead with the Democrats, but I wanted to lead with the big name on the right, the big names on the right. We all still are talking about uh, former President Donald Trump, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're continuing to talk about DeSantis in Florida and increasingly Texas governors, Greg Abbott. What's interesting about the voices on the right, and I know we'll get to the congressional side, is increasingly they are the governors. Republicans hold a significant number of state houses through the last election, which allowed them to have a lot of redistricting, to redraw the lines, to get a lot more Republican favorable seats. And a lot of that is so that they can get it checked off by the governors because they spend a tremendous amount of time lining up governors to support those efforts. So this idea of who the names are, I think you're going to start to see these governors and the, hearing these names jockeying as we move toward 2024. Who are the moderates? People would say Liz Cheney is part of that iconic establishment Republican, going back to her father's age and reconciliation. If you even think about her father, though, and I'm sure James has got a lot to say about her father, uh, he was not considered somebody who was centrist, you know, a good representative of the Republican Party for a lot of different reasons. The establishment Republicans, who we traditionally feel are the ones who come to the table, Mitch McConnell or uh, any of our Kevin McCarthy that we talk about in leadership, people are, are uh, very critical now of Kevin McCarthy as someone who can't navigate either side. If he moves toward compromise, he's seen as somebody who is not listening to his populist, very tilted conservative movement. If he's trying to work in any way with Pelosi, that he sees his establishment and people are trying to run a primary against him. So <laughs> basically, the claws are out for individuals who are trying to bridge that. But I do think as we move in the conversation, there's some really good positives coming from that. Thank you, James. You can also rebut. Thank you. Any. Very insightful. I'm glad to be back here. I was here some years ago. And it, of course, I worked in, in Israel in the late 90s and came back in Mayhood Barack's campaign. And Larry King asked me on television, he said, what advice did you give Barack in the last three days of the campaign? I said, well, I think we need to concentrate on that all-important Jewish vote. But <laughs> uh, thank you all. So the setup is this. My Republican friends say, James, look, we got our crazies. I'll, I'll, I'll concede that. But you got to admit that you got crazies too. I mean, we both got crazies, right? Let's dive just slightly deeper into that. So let's assume you have a niece, nephew, comes in and says, guess what? I just got a job as a research assistant in AOC's office. Your reaction would probably be similar to mine. Well, you're going to meet some interesting people, be a good experience. You're going to see some things that, you know, that your uncle would disagree with, but it, it's a good opportunity for you. If, on the other hand, 
your niece or your nephew comes and says, I got a job in Margie Taylor Greene's office or Carl Palladino's office. You go to the Empire State Building, jump. Your life is over. All right? One is a kind of silly, ungrounded phase that people go through. The other is just ranked evil. You've got to understand the difference. And people come to me and say, well, James, how does it feel to be a moderate Democrat? I said, I have no idea. I've never been a moderate Democrat. I've always been a liberal Democrat. But I'm not nuts. <laughs> there's a difference. All right? But there, there's something that I was just, just I was talking this morning. There's a piece, and you, you have to read this, and it's a publication called The Intercept. Just so you know, The Intercept is kind of one of the most influential publications on the American left. And when you finish reading it, and it's long, your head will explode. Because all they do is fight with each other. Have you ever seen the squad run against a Republican? No. It's Joe Crowley and Elliot Engel, everything that's wrong with America. It's not really Mitch McConnell or Newt Gingrich. And I just think there are misguided priorities, and I'll conclude with this. Anybody that tries to convince you that you can bring about social change and fundamental change in America without political power is out of their minds. Just understand that. To achieve anything, any major goal that you want or you think is important, in this country, you achieve it mostly through political power. You're going to just see how much is going to be achieved through political power when this month's Supreme Court decisions come down. It will be a good lesson in who runs this country. Before we move on, you have any rebuttals? <laughs> Anything you want to Extreme. say about? I don't know if I would have started with evil. I would, have, I, would have, I would have gone with evil. Interesting part about that, and I, a lot of it I agree with James. I'm going to be a contrarian on a few other things, but I do agree on how extreme it is. But the part people don't talk about is how repeatedly there are large groups of voters that support these candidates, and they keep winning over and over again. And people say, oh, we're going to target them, and oh, they're the extreme. You know, at first it was like one person or two people could fit in a phone booth. I date myself by talking about what a phone booth is. People remember what that is. They moved the last one away. I was like, goodbye. But, um, you know, but I could fit in a phone booth. And now the gaggle is slightly larger in terms of the number of people that are getting persuaded by a select few voices. But to James' points, the impact that they're having legislatively is still incredibly small. If anything, it's a distraction more than actually implementing true policy. Leslie, I'm going to stay with you because this is a part of what you do on the day-to-day, right? You are a consultant. You advise people in their digital content. When you're advising a candidate, is it in their best interest to be crazy on social media to get attention? <laughs> Please be crazy. That'll make our job so much easier. But well, some of them are trying to get through the frame. We went from a 24-hour news cycle to the two to four-second tweet cycle. Strange thing about this, James and I were talking about this over 10 years ago, um, just how fast everything moved around. You think Barack Obama's campaign, in the last month of the campaign, even the last weeks of the campaign, they were using YouTube for the first time and creating ads targeting very specific individuals by every hour there was a new ad coming up. Now you had a situation with Cambridge Analytica in the last election cycle where people were really micro-targeting based on your behaviors, your patterns, your personal data. 
Now the layer and the frightening layer on top of that is AI that's going to fundamentally work even faster at targeting and micro-targeting. So there's a technology aspect in terms of how strategists and some of these entities are looking at delivering exactly the message that's going to push attitude, intention, and behavior and push you right over the cliff one way or the other. That is the frightening part of this. When it comes to candidates, candidates are trying to do the same thing they've been trying to do forever, is get some attention when they don't have any money and be boisterous and and powerful. And some of it does not sound logical a, a lot of times, and we try to rein it in. But they are tapping, I'd say, Texas is a good example of that. They are tapping into a lot of frustration. So just think of it like Avatar, you know, when you plug into the big tree. Like, it's they're, 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 they're tapping into this ongoing frustration that we call the populist movement that is in the country right now. It tends to lean more conservative, and they want action. And those are the candidates who are being rewarded. James Leslie's been talking a lot about populism. What's happening on the left? Let's expand this. That's a big debate in a Democratic Party. And the people that believe that writing dictionaries and language and certain, quote, progressive, unquote, agenda should be at the forefront. And then there's a group which I decidedly consider myself in, and they're actually called populist. And it was best articulated by a young Democratic strategist named David Shaw. And it basically says that we should take popular issues and present those to the public and run on them, which I've always thought was a pretty good idea, (laughs) as opposed to taking unpopular issues to the public and running on them. And populism is a little bit different. You know, it started as a more of an agrarian movement, and it was anti-bank, and it didn't like the gold standard, it wanted free credit. Populism now has become very cultural. I mean, culture is, is taking it over. It's, it's much more cultural than it is economic. They'll pay homage to, they don't like corporate America, but it's more that coastal people are foisting a, their culture on us and we resist the culture that, that they do. And when you talk about social media, you talk about uh, TikTok or whatever it is, that's 21% of the country. That's mostly educated white coastal people. And most people feel not engaged. And so the big thing the Democrat strategy is, in order to get young people, we gotta do something about student loan forgiveness. All right? Take the number of people from 18 to 34 that owe on student loans, and take the people 18 to 34 that are hourly workers or earn a minimum wage. You know which one is bigger? Hourly workers earning a minimum wage. They passed a child tax credit when Biden first came into office. It reduced child poverty by 40%. Yes, it reduced child poverty. That the idea that we should all be offended that a child in this country could possibly go to bed cold or hungry is offensive to everyone. That expired. A prominent Democratic congressman said he got 100 calls about student loans and never got a single call about the child tax care credit. And the danger of being a coastal educated party is that you've never been there or you forget about who really votes and lives in this country. And it's very important that political strategists, politicians, policymakers, journalists understand that. 
if you just, if all you do is talk to people like you and that think like you, you're just going to continue. There's no chance that you can grow or understand anything more. And that is, in my view, a large part of the problem that Democrats or the center left or people like, you know, I have, I have most of the policy goals that the more progressive part of the party has. Some I disagree with. For the most part, I kind of want the same thing. I want to have an active federal government that dulls the harsher edges of capitalism, that, that has support for education, has income support, has retirement security, does something about the huge issue of climate, of which living in South Louisiana is going to destroy us, does something about all of the other issues that we have, but we have to go about it in a way that brings people in, not puts people off. As simple as that sounds, as simple as that sounds, it's a real problem on the American left. I was just saying, that sounds like a very good conservative Democrat platform. Again, there's nothing, I'm, I'm not a conservative. I'm actually a liberal, okay? But I believe that if you want to talk to someone and convince them, you speak to them in their language. If you want your language in the way that you communicate in your presentation is really critical when you're trying to convince people that your way of governing the country is better than the other way. But if you want to turn somebody off, use coded words that just elite educated people use, and that will confirm every suspicion that they have about you. And this party is run too much by the faculty lounge at Columbia and not enough by the people who are out there voting and living in it. That's my general view. Somebody else I would follow in Texas, Tony Gonzalez, Texas 23. That's an area that of my former member of Congress that I worked for, Henry Bonilla, for years and will hurt and have been in that. It's a very uh, critical area that is outside of San Antonio, Texas, and it includes all the way to El Paso, so about 700 miles of U.S.-Mexico border. It's an area that was traditionally Hispanic, like overwhelmingly in some of these communities in the Rio Grande Valley. That's what we're going to be hearing a lot about this election cycle, is this whole Rio Grande Valley area, New York Times, is sending reporters down to South Texas to understand why on earth would... Hispanic, uh, Hispanic voters who were traditionally, they are registered Democrats, vote for these Republican candidates. And there's three seats down there that could flip for Latinas. They would be the first ever Hispanic women uh, Republicans or Hispanic women, let's just put it that way, elected to Congress from Texas. Regardless of the party, that's phenomenal. But all of this is stacking up and it's moving to the right. And what we're learning down there is these are people who traditionally were not in politics. They used to consider themselves Democrats. Now they're running as Republicans and they're overwhelmingly women because they don't get in. Uh, a lot of people just didn't think that there were races that Republicans could win. So a group of Hispanic women stepped up and said, you know what, I'll take the reins, I'll raise money. Texas 15, Monica De La Cruz, she came really close last election cycle. She will may, she looks really good, like she may win this election cycle. And the reason it is, is people say Trump won that area in South Texas, a very conservative, Latino, Democratic area by 20 points. What they don't talk about is in the rural areas, just outside some of those towns, he won by 32 points. So people are saying, well, how could that be? These are, this is a Democratic territory. It's because they're not treating politics as usual. They're finding non-traditional candidates 
who are talking in language that they understand about issues they understand, and they're not being written in talking points by the Republican National Committee. And the party is confused of who they are, and that's why this- Are they the, the Republican squad? They may become a very powerful part, and Tony Gonzalez handpicked, he's part of the, the Young Guns at the National Republican Congressional Committee that is like identifying people who can meet the $100,000 threshold. Can they raise money? You know, the same challenges non-traditional candidates have. But they're changing the system because there's an opportunity for them and traditional way of talking to people on the right and the left isn't working. Leslie, before you were talking about the extremist voices not really having an impact on policy, that they make a big noise, they command media attention, but they're not actually influencing the policy. And I said we'd come back to that. And I think now is a really good time because there are those Ruben Gallegos who are influencing policy, but I, I think sometimes we're too quick to dismiss. So in AJC, we follow support for Israel very closely, obviously. And when the squad first came into Congress, the common response by, by Democrats, James, was, yeah, they're loud, people are paying attention to them, but they don't have an impact. But last year, when there was a vote on funding for Israel's Iron Dome missile defense, it was a few members, you know, a very progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who said, no, no, let's vote just on that. Let's not lump support for Israel in with other things we are funding. Let's just vote on whether or not Israel should have missile defense. And it passed, thank goodness. But that was sort of a landmark moment. And so, James, I want to ask you, is that talk? Are they influencing policy? Are they increasingly going to flex those muscles? Well, first of all, the Iron Dome was put in by President Obama, who, as I recall, was a Democrat. All right? Well, give credit the, the, where credit's due. Two things, yes, there is an anti-Israel sentiment on the extreme American left. All right. Remember, the person most responsible for the formation, the creation of the state of Israel was probably Harry Truman. And there's also a distinction between being pro-Israel and being pro the government of Israel. Being pro-Israel does not necessitate that you have to agree with the government, because having worked in Israel, I can assure you that many people that live there that don't like the government, <laughs> like a lot, <laughs> and can be quite vocal about it. Thank you. But I, I do think that the whole, of the, the Democrats have, have been with Israel very, very much since its founding and continue to be so. Do we have some voices on our left that can sometimes get, I don't know, ahead of themselves or kind of silly? Yeah, but let me tell you something. There wasn't good people on both sides in Charlottesville. There really wasn't. There could be good people on one side and there were really bad people on the other side. Really bad. So I think I would call this some background squabble in the Democratic Party. It's hardly more than five or six people in the caucus that feel this way. I think they're more, it's more become kind of a left-wing chic thing. It's always been to be for the Palestinians and against the Israelis. It, it, it's, it, it's just kind of the, the nature of that side. I, I actually like Palestinians fine. I know any number of them. And I consider myself to be very pro-Israel. I don't think one excludes the other necessarily. On the Republican side, we often hear, and this is, I would say, sort of inside Washington, when people are speaking candidly, 
they'll say, we don't understand the Jewish community. We've done everything we can for Israel. President Trump did the Abraham Accords, monumental, all of this. What more do you people want? And there are facets of the Jewish community that fall in line and say, this is the way to go. And a lot who say, but what about Charlottesville? What about anti-Semitic things made by Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jews responsible for space lasers? What do you say about that in terms of, you know, the Jewish vote and the Jewish space within the Republican Party? So there's two parts, I think, to that. One, if you, if you, from a broader perspective, a global perspective, the geopolitical risk that Israel faces and the impact that it has on the globe is very significant, but that's a constant re-education, I think, especially for these new members, for individuals who don't have that experience. And I continue to encourage that because there is a delta in terms of what people that fundamentally understand Israel, the concepts, the challenges, where it is in the world and, and why the U.S. has to continue its support, and others that see it as a talking point because they don't have a connection to it. So there's that perspective, and, and James is talking about that. The, the other perspective is all the anti-Semitic, the rise in crime and hate crimes, the rise in violence that's, that has been happening, um, and connecting that to a culture problem and why it's everybody's problem. It's not just a cultural problem, but it, it's everyone's problem that we're seeing this rise in violence and how it is imperative that we meet these communities where they are and have that relationship. I think there's many members who just don't have that relationship on both sides of the aisle for their own, for their own reasons. Anytime that someone refers to a group that they're not a member of is you people, that's not good. Okay? That's a, I wouldn't say it's a slur, but it's, it's really not good. Uh, to dig a little bit deeper here, I have always had, and I'm working there and I follow, I have a lot of friends, several that are dual citizens. I've never much liked the idea of the settlements. I think they're provocative. I think they cause image problems. They cause real problems. That doesn't, that, that's a legitimate concern that someone could have, all right? And therein lies the thing is you can disagree with the policies of the government of Israel and at the same time be pro-Israel. And sometimes people have to stop digest that and think about it. A lot of these problems, they're difficult. The state of Israel has always been under constant, not just attack, but under constant question. And that's the way it is. And it's probably going to stay that way for a while. We knew that this would be interesting. <laughs> but I think it's been much more than that. And in some ways, it's been instructive. What you've both done is illuminate to us very clearly where the challenges are and where the opportunities are. So we thank you, we appreciate your friendship, and as we move forward throughout the day, I think we'll be thinking about a lot of things that we heard here this morning. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to listen to Deborah Lipstadt and Katarina von Schnurbein discussing how governments can win the fight against anti-Semitism. And don't forget to subscribe to The Forgotten Exodus wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. 
The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 